You know, I was shot at five times, and I was twice by loyalists, so-called, and um, three times by Republicans, but it wouldn't have mattered to my mother which one hit me. I'll give you an example again. When the Yorkshire Ripper in England was on the go, there were 50 detectives assigned to try and track down a five-pound note. 50. And uh, there was 10 in the murder squad dealing literally with hundreds and hundreds of murders in one office. When I, mean, I can remember being in the murder squad office and the wall was, there was no wall, it was just covered in file boxes. You just and literally, because that's what it was like, you didn't know, you know, in the next five minutes whether you'd be laughing, crying, injured, dead. Uh, and, and that's what I was trying to convey. So Thanks very much for sitting down with me. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, can, can you do us a bit of a favour? Can, can you give us like an intro on yourself? Um, you were geez, fourteen plus years in the RUC. Um, so you, you you might tell us a bit about uh, a bit about those years and and maybe even what the RUC is for for people who mightn't be familiar. Uh, I will indeed. I joined um, the police, I suppose, by I quite by accident, but uh, I intended to um, study law at Trinity in Dublin, and um, I went over to work in America, funnily enough, for the summer. And uh, but then was been traveling about and I met friends and then decided to go the following year. And uh, it was a bit early on the old gap year front. But um, anyway, next year never really happened. And uh, I had in my hometown been in the part-time reserve, to be truthful, more as a way of a bit of money. And then you could work what hours you wished. Uh, rather than any great financial reward. But anyway, that had sort of steered me towards it. And funny enough, my brother, who had gone to Trinity, he uh, emigrated to Canada and joined the police there. Uh, so anyway, I ended up joining and uh, ended up stationed in Belfast and the troubles were ongoing. And of course, the, the law never happened. I'm sorry, what... Um, what- what year? What year did you join up? How, how that far? year, that would have been nineteen eighty one. Whenever I, I joined the, the the regulars, had sort of a little bit of been away and back and forth to America. Prior to that, so I would have joined. Uh, that was the year of the hunger strike and a fairly, uh, shall we politely call it busy, <laughs> time for the uh, RUC. And uh, as you mentioned, they the stands for the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which were the police force that took over in Northern Ireland after partition when the Royal Irish Constabulary faded following uh, partition. And uh, they carried on until their name was changed in 2001 um, into the, morphed into the police service of Northern Ireland. Um, okay, so you, you joined, you, you said 83, so the troubles have been... Um, had been raging like like a good decade. I think I think seventy two and seventy four were the two bloodiest years. So 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 yeah, they would have been. Yeah, you you came along for, for following a, a very. I, 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 I joined the part time as I was saying to you in Bangor, but that was in nineteen seventy seven, um, and that would have it was only really obviously when I got into the full time. That was uh, well, I became full time in nineteen eighty. Um, and I worked in North Belfast, which was always was and probably still is uh, one of the busiest um, police uh, stations in Northern Ireland. And at one point would have had probably one of the highest crime rates in Europe during the Troubles. And a lot of those murders you referred to from the 70s uh, would have taken place in that uh, 
area of the division that I was in around Tennant Street and Old Park. And yet it was quite a small area, but um, the I think statistically it's it's madness in terms of the number of overall murders, even given what was going on in Northern Ireland. In fact, my first week in Tennant Street, I was first in the scene at three murders, and it could have been five, only two of the people survived. And I'd come from, you know, Bangor, sort of quiet town down the coast, and uh, I just couldn't work out I mean, where have I ended up. It was, just, it was just day and night compared to the way I grew up. Um, you, you you touched on it there, actually, kind of briefly, and I wanted to ask you to provide uh, the listeners with, with a bit of context. Um, but the the troubles were the troubles were were like hyper concentrated. Like Ireland itself is a small country, but it didn't even take place. You you can't even say it took place in Ireland. It took place very specifically in the north, and even more specifically again in in more concentrated areas. Can you give people a bit of a I, I can indeed. I mean, if you even compared it to one of the one of the states uh, in America um, and tried to divide it up into the area, the percentage of areas directly affected. I mean, I, I live twenty minutes away. Um, I still do uh, from where I'm talking about in North Belfast. Uh, and but in terms of the towns or city, well, the Belfast city and Bangor town. I mean, it is just day and night, and actually. Tennis Street Station, which was one relatively small station in a very small division. Uh, I remember the busiest month it ever had was 29 murders in 31 days. And you, you barely had time to go to um, the, the murder scene and get the person's name and address before you left to go to the next one. And, and it sometimes causes a bit of, I don't mean ill feeling, but the concern when people come to you 50 years later and say, well, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? And you quite literally hardly had time to get the person identified before you went to the next one. And, and don't forget, it's not like nowadays where uh, there's a whole system, you have computers. I mean, the murder squad in Tennant Street um, dealt with many murder gangs from both sides of the community. And um, the, the problem they had that they were dealing with was that quite simply, people were scared to speak to them or help them. It's not like normal policing where people would be witnesses, tell you what happened, who they'd seen, didn't see, or whatever it might have been. That just didn't occur. And there were 10 in the murder squad, not a computer between them. Uh, and at one stage, I remember the, the, the 319 open murder cases on, on their desk. It was just an impossible task. In fact, one, and I'm diverging a bit, but one one detective sergeant, I know he went over to um, a CID course in England, which was just a normal course thing for a few weeks. And um, the instructor asked, was anybody here ever been involved in a murder? And of course, in England, a few people put their hand up and they'd been very much on the periphery, uh, very minorly involved. Whereas in Belfast, you'd have had constables uh, dealing with murders because there simply wasn't the man part of doing anything else. And I remember um, Sam's Christian name was, he put his hand up then. He said, well, you've been involved in a murder inquiry as well. And there's only a couple of hands went up to say there'd been maybe one. And he, they said, how many murders have you been involved with? And he said, I'm currently investigating 64. And, and you know, people just couldn't take that in. I mean, currently investigating 64. And I mean, it was an impossible job. That's um that's insane altogether. Yeah, they, they were um, God, they, they they were very they were very unique times. Uh, uh, fortunately, fortunately, it's something that's very much in the past. But uh, but yeah, uh-huh. very violent times. Most of these deaths, um, if you could put like a rough kind of percentage, were, were the majority shootings? Um, 
there weren't that many bombings, uh, thankfully. There were there were some explosions, not so many mass murder bombings. Um, it would mostly have been shootings, and quite a lot of them individually shot and on just sectarian murders on either side, and you know, answering your front door quite literally in certain areas, and then being shot by somebody from the other side for whatever reason and very often there, I mean, there was no reason other than where you lived and, and uh, you were a different religion it was, I mean it was as stupid as that not that it could ever get bright but you know what I mean yeah um, actually on the on the topic of religion one of the criticisms that um, that the REC has uh, or, or, or had back when it existed was there was um, very much a skewed uh, Protestant and Catholic ratio uh, within it when you joined kind of mid 80s how how many like like out of ten? If there's ten officers, how many are Catholic and Protestant? Roughly? I I don't actually. The percentage was traditionally very low, and it was unquestionably um, the religious breakdown would have been predominantly Protestant. The the irony is that actually in the place, uh, I never heard people discuss that because you were all wearing the same uniform, and you were all they were, no matter what the background of the person you were just placed. They used to say there was three. Religions in Northern Ireland, there was Catholics, Protestants, and policemen, because the the policemen really didn't care if you're going to running towards danger. You don't really care who's with you. You just know and want to know, and they need to know that the person who's running beside you has your back. And religion never, ever was a feature between them. And when the call came in to a shooting, a bombing, whatever it might have been, or just ordinary crime, I mean, you were never going, well, I wonder what religion those people are. I mean, it was everybody outside of the place seemed to be very concerned. But, you know, I was shot at five times, and I was twice by uh, loyalists, so called. And, um, three times by Republicans, but it wouldn't have mattered to my mother which one hit me. You know, it just didn't come into it. In the force, people outside it tended to um, obsess more about it. And the other irony, indeed, when in my books, there's a, a story about some of the guys, um, and I remember that very distinctly, he was from West Belfast, but very often someone in West Belfast, who was obviously from a Catholic background, joined the police but really they couldn't go back to West Belfast ever to visit their parents or see their families and part of the reason for the imbalance which doesn't tend to get reported but it would tend to be because if they did join that was the end of them and they were actually more of a target to Republican terrorists um, because they were were sort of seen as traitors or something and there was one guy who's described in the book he went home for the weekend to see his parents and one of the guys he worked with said to him uh, are you sure you're wise you know could you not arrange to meet them somewhere rather than going back home and he said i can look and, and his very expression was to him i know they're bad but they're not that bad and he was on sunday morning checking as he used to encourage the oil and water before he drove back up to Derry. and then uh, when he was leaning over the bonnet we came and shot him dead outside his parents house you know, another guy I know who lived down where was from down around the border area. Um, I was with him, I was actually in a bar and he was drinking orange juice. So, of course, what's wrong with you? Uh, you're, you're not having a drink. And he said, No, I'm actually going down to visit my mum. And um, I said, Well, 
Anyway, it transpired. He was going down to see his mother, which was at the border in about an hour's drive from where we were. And he, um, she didn't know he was coming. He said he would arrive about quarter past, half past four in the morning. And he couldn't stay in the house any longer than 15 minutes. So they'd know he was there. Uh, he would just quickly say her hello, wake him up up in the middle of the night uh, and drive off. And that was just the way they lived. But the, when they joined, the, that was part and parcel of the decision they made. So really the reason, I'm not saying it was the entire reason, but it was a big factor, was quite simply that it was too dangerous for people from a nationalist area who would have been particularly hunted uh, by, by the IRA uh, for assassination if they did join because it was some sort of traitor thing in their head. I see. Did, did, did that um did that sentiment exist um on on the other side? If you came from a Protestant background, I I assume if if you went back home to like the old neighborhood, you wouldn't uh you wouldn't be viewed like unfavorably, or or, or would you? No, it, it it wouldn't have been the same. It would have tended to have been a, a more Republican viewpoint, as in people from a, a more unionist background uh, didn't mind if people had joined with anything. Um, so there, there was never that particular fear, but it was just the nationalist areas. And of course, in the areas that, that may have been where the uh, Republican terrorists may have obviously operated more freely and new people and would have realized that you were back. So it, it certainly that would have been the one way or, or people couldn't go to their own parents' funerals and things like that. I mean, they just had to stay away forever. In fact, again, one of the books is a, a policewoman whose uh, mother had died and her brother was in the IRA. And um, he told her that uh, not to be coming to the funeral, you know, I'll shoot you, not just the, the Republican movement will. And, and she couldn't go back. And actually her boss made an arrangement with the local parish priest to go down to visit her mother in the chapel where she was lying in rest overnight. And he got her half an hour sort of say her goodbyes, but she couldn't go to the funeral or ever speak to the family again. To this day, she now lives in Scotland, actually. Um, I, I assume within the RUC, um, probably the majority, not, not even because they were Protestant, but 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 I assume the majority were in favour of the six counties staying as part of Britain as opposed to as opposed to joining the the Republic, or, or, or was that even would it even have been discussed? It, it wouldn't have been a topic for discussion, um, but pro probably because they came from, the majority of them came from a unionist background, but I never heard anybody who came from a nationalist background who joined, talked about wanting to be in a united Ireland. There, there's sometimes, uh, I think it's a bit of a myth, I mean, even now, that um, elements who... I'm trying not to get down into a head counter or naming different outfits, but people who would prefer to have a united uh, Ireland. Um, and then obviously you have unions, but they, they tend to sort of group it into a sectarian head count. And I think that those days are sort of long gone that because you were born of a particular region, for some reason you wanted to stay on one side or the other. I think there's more uh, logic to it and that. The people that are more concerned about uh, your economic power, you're able to grow up jobs, opportunities. Um, that comes into it's a bigger factor, cost of living, and how which one would I be better off in, as opposed to a straightforward romantic notion of what they would like to see happen. I mean, my two I have two girls who went off to university and 
uh, England, and normally that would have happened. You know, they might never have come back during the height of the troubles. Both of them have come back and, uh, you know, working around it. That's great to see, and it's great for the future, irrespective of their background. It's great to see people come back. That's what I mean. Would um okay so so you 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 joined the RC kind of mid eighties I I would the would the main priority have been um the IRA and invest investigating their crimes were were, were like loyalists were, were loyalist groups put put as as much of a priority or well they aren't if you look at the the statistics about the number of uh, loyalists caught. Uh, as in convicted, you know, for well, we'll go for the worst crime of murder. Uh, the, the statistically more loyalists were imprisoned for terrorist offences and murder than there were Republicans. Um, so that, and that's always been the case, and it's quite a high statistic. Right? There was there was less than fifty percent of Republican murders uh, cleared as police would talk about, as in somebody was got for them, uh, than there were from the the loyalist side. But they were certainly placed with them, you know what I mean? Uh, Tennant Street had the shankled butchers, uh, as well as all the other murders. So, I mean, it was a notorious area, but, I mean, you know, murder, murder, death. I mean, when I think back at night in your quieter moments when um, something horrendous comes into your head, I mean, you, you don't have a definition of who it was or where it was. Or you might remember for some specific incident, but it was just a murder. You went to it and uh, you did your best to find out who did it. Irrespective of who the victim was, I see. Um, you 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 mentioned earlier there that um th- there would be times when like you're you're literally, you're you're literally just trying to get to each murder scene and maybe collect a bit of uh, collect a bit of evidence and do like the basic stuff, and then you're you're whisked off to another one. Um, so so with that in mind, um, like looking back when 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 you think back onto like investigations, do, do you think they um, do you think there was like corners cut or um? You know, kind of more, more rough methods used. Um, given that you just simply don't have the time. The, the, the pro the process would have been the same. It's not a case of uh, corners were cut. You never got to the corner, uh, because you had. I mean, there were ten in the murder squad. There was a, a CID dealing with ordinary crime and murders as well. But there were ten people in the murder squad in uh, Tennant Street to cover that area, and I'm talking hundreds uh, of murders, and they just physically. Couldn't, and they were already working every hour God sent. Um, and many of them got burnt out uh, as a result of it. As I say, there wasn't a computer between them. And the murders were coming in thick and fast from both sides. And there was no um, quarter given. You just went, took as long as you could at the thing. And then, and while you were looking at that murder, you were also investigating, like that man sent him investigating 64. Well, he's doing his best to try and find out if information came in about someone. And normally, I'll give you an example. Again, when the Yorkshire Ripper in England was on the go, there were 50 detectives assigned to try and track down a five-pound note. 50. And uh, there was 10 in a murder squad dealing literally with hundreds and hundreds of murders in one office. I mean, I can remember being in the murder squad office and the wall was, there was no wall. It was just covered in file boxes. Uh, with names written on the end of them, and they were all unsolved murders. I mean, when I think back, it's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, and and it's probably I, I'd have to imagine it's a tougher. They're generally tougher murders to investigate because, uh, at least with a serial killer, there's kind of like clear motive and stuff. But in this murky world of um, 
of like IRA and and, and different groups and different intelligence agencies. And th- th- there's a lot of things that kind of wouldn't seem that, that they wouldn't be as they seem. You know, someone might be an informant or a suspected um, informant. So, so the reason they're they're killed might mightn't be so clear. You know. I mean, that could have happened, but that would have been internal uh, housekeeping, as they describe it, in the organisations. Uh, I mean, no one informant ever was given immunity or impunity or whatever uh, on either side in connection with uh, a murder uh, or anything beyond that. I mean, unfortunately, if you do want to get information from some people, you know, there's no point going to the Women's Institute to get them. You've got to get down and dirty with the people who are involved. And um, sadly, sometimes it's, you know, having a, a beer with the devil. But no one, certainly of any note, or who committed uh, a, a murder or anything like that would be uh, a blind eye would be turned. I mean, if they were caught speeding or something like that, I'm quite sure that uh, there could have been something like that for them just to keep them happy. But they wouldn't have got much. Not Nothing serious would have been. That was, it, just wouldn't, it goes against every grain of a, a, a policeman anyway. to even be talking to them, never mind. Trying to help them, right? Um, did did you do in your investigations or in, in carrying out your job? Did you ever like uh, clash with with some kind of other government agency, be it like an intelligence agency, MI five, MI six, did FRU who ran steak knife, for example? Would, would you ever would you ever kind of bump into them? Um, and you, there not, would have been not, no not, direct, not ruin an operation, but like kind of crash into. Into something that they had going that you didn't know about. Well, there wouldn't have been any direct in, involvement with uh, placing an area and into people like that. And if it were to have ever happened, they would have sorted it out. I mean, ultimately, they were all working towards the same goal, albeit uh, with different tactics from some things more secretive than others. And uh, the, I mean, the state makes obviously something that's in the media and then with his recent death. Uh, alleged recent death, I should say, because we're not supposed to know if it's ever or not. But anyway, um, it, it you know, I mean, I don't know um, what he was done. I know uh, from the Smithwick inquiry down south that he was, um, he was supposedly he and the one of the guarded guys who was giving information were report, all reporting back to Mark McGuinness. Uh, I read that, but I mean, how much of that's correct? There's a lot of myths springs up about these things too. So, uh, but I, I certainly don't ever know of any problem. Um, I mean, policing was difficult enough without complicating it with. And there were different agencies, but eventually, any intelligence gathering things the world over. I mean, that can happen in the states there between the FBI and local police or interstate police, or uh, you know, you just don't know. And it's just not. And I mean. As John Hume famously said, there's no point in having uh, a secret service if you don't keep it a secret. <laughs> um, was it ever the case um, during your time in the in the RUC when when anyone was caught, uh, maybe caught like colluding with um, some paramilitary group? I know, I know at least the uh, I I think the RUC were were accused of um, of some kind of involvement or collusion with them with the Pafanukan murder. But like anything like that, did did you ever hear any rumbling? I certainly never saw or heard of anything directly, uh, and and had I done, obviously I would have taken like most policemen the action because our, our number one priority is to save life, irrespective of whose life it is, uh, and I, I I couldn't express that more thoroughly. Uh, sometimes people will throw up the Glen N gang, 
um, who were sort of in the in the seventies and was before my time, but it was rogue uh, policemen when the murders were happening of all the policemen, and then tried to act outside the law. That's a very pressed version, but um, whenever the, the investigator, but as I, I keep saying to anybody who listens, especially when they bring up um, uh, uh, the collusion thing, it's quite simple in my view that. They wouldn't have heard of the Glenn gang if the RUC hadn't gathered the information, investigated, realised it was them, brought them for before a court and had them convict them and they went to prison. So I mean, that's the only reason anybody knows about them. It was actually the RUC who did it, and yet we get accused of uh, colluding with them when it was us who put them in prison. It, you know, it's a, it's a sort of an oxymoron, the way that people would describe it. Or, or even with um, when Pat Finucane's um, uh, murder... They, they, uh, th- there was talk that there was, I mean, I don't know because obviously I wasn't involved in it, but there was, if there, there was an informant, it may have been that's been speculated. And sp- sometimes speculation can very quickly become fact, uh, especially seeing as when often it's not something that can be very easily deniable. Because if you start denying it, uh, you're sort of confirming it or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. But these things take on a life of their own. And then uh, Mr. Finucane's own rule. Um, and, and his families within the IRA probably would have drawn uh, so-called loyalists' attention to him in any case. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have certainly needed help. They wouldn't have needed any guidance or pointers from the police uh, to, to find him uh, because of his own work for um, the, with the IRA and his brothers. Being in, it. in fact, they tried to extradite them from Dublin Minis the time to get them uh, charged up here. Uh, back in uh, back in the eighties, I'd imagine not not just with you, but um, but kind of any police force, um, I'd imagine when it came to maybe things like interrogation and you know methods of uh, methods of of force or being rough, it, it was probably a different game back then. Um, like like back back in the eighties, did, did you see did you see like methods that that you look back on and 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 think were were wrong or were, were too much? And, and I I never saw any of it in the um. Yeah, I've I've heard you know obviously as you have uh, speculation in the press with uh, just the death just recently of one of the um, so-called hooded men from the army back in 1971 I think it was or two I'm not sure um, and there was white noise and things like that that were more akin to I suppose Vietnam or somewhere I don't know where uh, you would have heard about it I've I've never known or spoken to and I've spoken to a lot of um, uh, cops over the years. Uh, both socially and at, at work, um, and over a susparella or two that you know, perhaps they would have said things, but I've never heard anyone um, say or uh, confirm uh, anything like that. I mean, very often, for somebody who's being interviewed, if you've been interviewed for seven days, you probably think it is torture. Uh, I suppose, technically speaking, you should. Uh, you know, if they're trying to get you to confess to something you don't want to obviously say whether you did or didn't do. If you didn't do it, obviously you won't. But um, it's, a, it's a very tricky one. I've never seen any proof of it. I've never seen any proof of the um, collusion. And if I had heard anything of it, and not just me, I know people who I would have worked with, uh, it wouldn't have been something that would have been acceptable. And that's why it certainly didn't exist on a scale that the... Um, and bear in mind, we've had 40 years of during the troubles of propaganda against us. 
uh, where, whereby these things and they take on a life of their own and things get distorted and become facts. Uh, I mean, it, it, even in nationalist areas after the ceasefire from the IRA, I mean, they started the, the parades problem uh, about objecting to them. And then uh, that, that all came about simply because the number of phone calls and people reporting things to the police had gone through the roof. It was starting to turn into a normal area, whereas before they'd managed to keep uh, the security forces and uh, the, the the public sort of at each other's throats, which was a very important factor uh, in any campaign. And indeed, I mean, it was quite a simple philosophy. You know, if you shoot a British soldier walking down the street, well, the British soldier's going to take it out and local people when they stop using them might be... Um, perhaps more ignorant, more aggressive, whatever it might be with whoever they're speaking to. And then, you know, when you kill another, I mean, it's not hard to work out the cycle. But that's the difference between somebody being rude to somebody they've stopped or, uh, you know, and vice versa. I mean, it was a two-way encounter, obviously. Um, they didn't want to be stopped to coverage with it, and they didn't want to, be, I suppose, be there, never mind stopping you. So it takes on a life of its own, but I've never seen any facts. I've never heard any evidence. And interestingly, and in this day and age, I just do not believe that it couldn't happen. If there was evidence, I mean, the RUC even subsequently, I mean, must be the most scrutinized force in the world. And I mean, I can't believe that nothing would have come forth in evidence. I mean, once you go beyond the conspiracy of one, you're in trouble. Because, you know, when two people know about it, it's not a conspiracy anymore. Sooner or later, you know, somebody's going to tell somebody. Um, that that didn't happen, obviously. Are there are there be people in court as they should be if they did it? I see. I see. W- would you say um, would you say there was like a typical day um, that you would have as a as the type of RUC officer you were? Well, I mean, if you're in uniform and on patrol, as it were, uh, there was no sort of typical day, John. Insofar as uh, the typicalness of it was how untypical uh, it would be. You know, you could literally, uh, and that's what I tried to do in the books, because when, when I had these stories gathered up, um, I, I was looking at it from a point of view of putting you or anyone uh, who, who would read them in the front seat of a police car. So when the radio crackled in the life or you were sitting in an office and the phone went, you just literally, because that's what it was like, you didn't know you know, in the next five minutes, whether you'd be laughing, crying, injured, dead. Uh, and, and that's what I was trying to convey. So when I had the stories, I had to think, well, how do you turn that into a book? And that's when I went for the timeline, uh, if you know, from all around the station. And, and literally, you know, it was the black humour. that I mean, it's, it's not just Northern Ireland. Or, I mean, it's the same with the guards. It's the same across the world. I mean, black humour is infamous in, in the, the policemen, a lot of policemen. Uh, the states I've met in Canada, particularly through my brother, and it is exactly the same um, everywhere. They, they, they have the same problems in common. There's just different labels attached to it, but they still have to. They're the ones who have to run towards it and clear it up, and they build their own defense mechanism, which is very often some stupid joke will come out that's probably in poor taste, but it's not meant to be offensive. It's really to keep them sane. Yeah, I, I I've heard that a previous guest that I, I spoke to was um uh, a gentleman who who dealt with like like chronic PTSD after being um after being like a road cop, you know, he he'd seen like a lot of uh, gruesome car crashes and shootings and all that sort of thing, and he was telling me that when he was on the job, he sort of had um a kind of a happy mask that he would wear, and then he'd go home 
and he'd be boozing and um boozing, feeling terrible, d- dealing dealing with like post traumatic stress. I, I I'd have to imagine amongst amongst officers in the RUC some of the things they'd be seeing, like bodies blown apart and horrific things that, that that no one should see um I, I i'd have to imagine that that dealing with that uh like well, dealing with that in your own time was a tough you, you really i remember bloody friday in belfast policeman telling me that you know we spent the day uh when, when the first bombs started to go off um you know people were coming over and would go you know the public they looked to you automatically for you know some words of wisdom that Will help, and he said, "We didn't even know what to tell them because there were so many bombs going off. We didn't know we could even send them into the path of one." And I mean, there was one guy who worked uh, in in Belfast in the police, and he came around to the bus station to help. And he saw the remains of a torso sticking out from under a car, and he he pulled it out uh, to see if he could do anything to help. And um, back went on. The person was obviously that's having missing and all the rest. And obviously dead, but they only found out later that was actually his brother, and he didn't recognize him. So, you know, how do you go home after that? And your wife's sitting there with the kids, going, What do you want for your tea? You know, and uh, you'll never guess what Johnny did, did he wouldn't do his homework or something. Um, you know, and you've got to live the, this sort of divide yourself in half and two bits of comfort. There's another fellow you're talking about accidents. Um, they, they got a call. Uh, and these are all these obviously from the books now, but they got a call uh, on their way back. They were drifting back towards the station, thinking they were the finish at eleven or whatever it was. And a local car, they were a traffic car, said, um, "Oh, there's been an accident. The car was on fire. They didn't have a fire extinguisher, and uh, the traffic cars were always well equipped with these things." And they said, oh, "We have one. Look, we'd come anyway." They went over. Long story short, and when they got there, the thing was on fire. Uh, fire brigade had arrived. We're trying to get the thing out, couldn't. But there was a person alive in the car, but they couldn't get near it with the heat. Um, and this man was saying he was on his way home, literally five to eleven or something, drifting towards the station, thinking, "What will I watch on TV when I get home? Done wine for uh, half an hour." And he spent the. Like, he was at that thing for a while, and it took twenty minutes. He said before the person actually died, and they couldn't get into the the car. And but he said, "I watched him burn to death," and. He was actually standing with his hand on a gun, his own gun, thinking, if this doesn't, I might have to shoot this guy to put him out of his misery, like putting down a dog. You know, so it was very hard to deal with that and then arrive home uh, and just automatically switch off or go to bed. And, and those were only two, you know, and I don't mean them necessarily actually hard, even that extreme, because it was such a, a, a common occurrence. You know, and I, when I, I spoke to um, one guy who was due to lay the wreath, funny enough, at the Enniskillen Memorial, do you remember Enniskillen bomb? And um, he was laying a wreath, a wreath on behalf of the police. Uh, and it had been raining. And he told me that uh, he's got chronic post-traumatic stress, and, but uh, he didn't need to tell me. I knew by looking at him when he walked in the room to see me when I was doing this. And he... We're going to say anyway that it had been raining, and the inspector in charge said, "Look, lads, it, it stopped. You know, like a sun shine." He, he said, "Take your coats off and go throw them back in the Land Rover because it looks smarter in the Chinook, and come back up and we'll get the service done." And they did that, and as we were walking back up, the bomb went off. And had he not, they had the inspector not said or it stopped raining, they would all have been dead. They'd have been standing right in front of it, and it was just one of those simple twists of fate. 
uh, and then they spent their time trying to get, patch people up and pick up bits of bodies and um, really, another girl was telling me the woman bomb. She's she her job was to match pieces of bodies with other pieces like a jigsaw, and she was eight months pregnant at the time. And she said, "I wish I remember being pregnant. And I'm trying to give birth." And I remember I had a spare foot with a striped sock, and and she was trying to find the rest of the body for it. I mean, you imagine doing that when you're eight months pregnant and and then supposed to, you know, the day after. Carry it on then and go back and do some other sort of duty. So, and, and I don't mean to compress those. I mean, there's a lot of humor and stuff in the books, but there's still a reality of, of what it was like. And so, I mean, it's a, it was an impossible, with hindsight, particularly at the time, uh, the irony is, John, that you went to whatever the call was, you did whatever it was and whatever you had to do, and John, the next, and you didn't, you tried, you, didn't, you know, you sort of compartmentalize everything, even though it probably doesn't work. But in your, in your head, you think it's working and this isn't affecting you at all. And then it's only then sometime later that you know, it hits you like a wet cloth in the face. Was it common? Uh, it, it, it's kind of a common Irish solution in general to uh, to kind of drink away your feelings. But uh, like, what, what was it common amongst amongst officers to, to self-medicate when they're all? A hundred percent. I think that's applicable across the world as well with uh, cops. Uh, I remember one guy telling me when he joined the police, he didn't drink. Uh, and he ended up in the crime squad and they dealt solely with you know serious incidents and for they were traveling all around the province because local cid wouldn't have had the manpower so you know 10 of them would go down or whatever it might be and there was 10 hotels so they're working hard uh all day just that the thing and the way he put it to me was uh he says well you know i didn't drink when i first joined he says but then your drink became your medicine and then he looked at me and he says, and by God, we took some medicine. <laughs> uh, and I knew exactly what he meant. And that was just what was part of it. And some of them ended up with difficulty. Some can handle it better than others. And a lot of them I know um, couldn't and, and paid the price. And also, I mean, apart from the 302 murdered, there was over 10,000 injured, many of them with life-changing operations, and another 90 committed suicide. Um from what what they'd seen, well, no, I mean, we all decided to join, and we all uh, enjoyed it. It was part and parcel of it. But if that three hundred and two, just for your own audience, if that was converted allowing for the population um, in America, that would be sixty six thousand policemen dead, uh, and then sort of brings the figure home more because you can get a few hundred. You know, people get very blasé about it. But I mean, if if, if all of a sudden you've got the Dodger Stepman Stadium full, you know, dead bodies. But, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, a harsher story, and I don't even know what the 10,000 injured would convert to. Right. Um, would uh, would there be, would it be common for, for like, burnout to occur with, with officers to, to, to get, like, to, to get stressed to the point where, where they'd have some kind of breakdown or they're incapable of functioning normally or doing their job properly? Well, they, they, it, it did happen, and, and I'm sure it still does. I mean, it's not just even sort of tied to uh, the RUC. It was probably just tied because of what they were dealing with. But, um, yeah, there, there's no doubt uh, people who are married, young kids, and what have you, or even, you know, there's, there's family life brings its own stresses. And then sometimes trying to flick a switch, you know, at 5 o'clock, 
um, when you're not a policeman anymore, you know, to, you know, now you're uh, a husband, would you help, you know, so-and-so with his homework? Would you do the grass needs cut? Would you put the bin out? And all, all these mundane things. And I don't mean to belittle them because it's life, but it's very difficult. Uh, and some people it's obviously more difficulties than others to switch. And then what you were doing at work, I mean, what I'm saying, and I mean literally shoveling bodies, uh, up in a plastic bag and, and the, how, how do you go from that to, I mean, you, most people, if you're working in the office, you might have a chat with your uh, wife, partner, whatever, uh, but how your day was. But I mean, that's not really a topic for over tea with the kids. You know, so they tended to bottle it up and, you know, how was it? Yeah, it was fine. You know, or else they'd go for a drink after work and they're going for a drink after work for the simple reason cops understood you didn't need to explain to them what it was like. Uh, so the tendency was they would group and talk to each other and then you hear those things with cop talk and uh, all the rest of it. And uh, I understand fully how that would happen because, I mean, you didn't want to bring it up uh, at home and you couldn't and, and you'd be the worst in the world for doing it and yet you were becoming the worst in the world because you are coming home half cut um, with a drink and that was leading to a different problem because you couldn't talk about it and then the vicious cycle um, just goes on. I, I remember a guy telling me that uh, they were in West Belfast and there was a lorry hijacked and they were put across the lorry and it was coming at three o'clock and of course they wanted to go home uh, rather than waiting to call the army out by the time they fiddle and muck about as they would put it. Obviously they're trying to defuse a bomb and you don't want to rush it but anyway they're going by the time they fiddle about we'll be here to all ours and they just wanted to get away. So it was coming up it was about quarter ten to three and one of the guys with him uh, used to be a lorry driver before he joined, and he said to the sergeant, and this is true verbatim, it's one of the books, but he said, uh, he says, you know, Sarge, I can drive that. I can move it. We've had a look at it. It doesn't seem to have a bomb. I can move it and clear the road and the world will go back to normal. And he said to him, the sergeant looked at him, and he said, you'll do that once too often. And that was the day. You... You'll do that once too often. And um, that was the day. It was too often. He was a big guy when he got in and sat in the car. There was a, a bomb set to detonate with a weight on the seat uh, rather than under the... And they looked under the car or under the lorry to see if there was anything attached to it that would go off and it could start it or moved or whatever, a mercury tilt switch or something. But it was actually under the seat. And, of course, nobody looked there. He would then set up and was blown up. And the fellow who was telling me the story was his best mate. And he, he said he got into the back of the ambulance, the, the, the injured guy, and um, he just sat up and uh, he sort of saluted and waved. And he said, that was him saying goodbye, and he just felt down dead. I was going to say, how would you, how would you possibly uh, go home and tell, go home and I tell? How your day was? Anyway. And funny enough, he, he told me when he did go home, uh, he was um, going up to the driver to the house and then he said, no, I have to get out of here. And he didn't go in and he went to see an uncle his who'd been in the place. He says, I knew he'd understand. And he went and talked to him. Yeah, um, I, 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 I've, interviewed, I've interviewed like um, like military people in the past and, and, and they said the same thing that like even 
even if they could sit and describe for hours the things they saw and felt and and smelled and stuff, you 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 just couldn't to a civilian, you know, because no. they, they just don't have the context at all. I, I I can very much understand how um how they'd end up just socializing with each other outside of it because they're the only people who who could understand kind of how they felt, you know. Yeah, and that's that's what happens, and I say that leads them to its own uh, difficulties as well. I mean, there's another guy told me he was in a helicopter and um, they, they fired a rocket at it and it blew the tail thing off, uh, 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 stabilizing the propeller. Anyway, and it starts to fall. It's supposed to fall like an old sycamore leaf, you know, twiddle around as it comes to the ground as a controlled landing. I actually remember sitting, in fact, I was sitting here uh, when I was writing, and up and um, uh, I won't use the exact word he used, but he just said, uh, uh, a controlled descent, they call it, hitting the ground at a right certain rate, I'd call it. <laughs> and he said the thing came down like stone. But anyway, he got out and he survived, which was the important thing. And he said, and I was just so elated. And then it turned out he was walking back to the station and he was standing, sort of rest, taking in what had happened, the helicopter crashing, the rocket hitting it, everything that had gone on. And where he was standing, he only found that you know, there was a secondary bomb uh, in the, the, the hedge where he, literally where he was standing looking back at it. Uh, but it didn't, it failed to detonate. And he said, I got into the house and um, I phoned my girlfriend. He said, I phoned my wife. Nobody was in. I had to tell somebody something. He said, and I was ringing all around. And he actually said, obviously called Greg at CB. And he said, CB, I'm not joking. He said, I'd have phoned the speaking clock and told it if I could have got the number. He said, I just had to talk to somebody about it all. And he was laughing at himself. Um, but he couldn't, there was nobody there. He says, the one day I rang, everybody I knew couldn't get hold of a single person. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing, thing you brought up about um, about having the, the need to voice it and, and, and express in words how you feel. Um, it, it's certainly it's certainly a thing amongst more so amongst men that like that that men tend not to talk about their feelings yeah, and, their battles and all that. I, I I'd have to imagine back then, back then it would it, it would be more so, and especially in a job that required like a stiff upper lip, but a, a lip and a, a tough kind of more. It, it had that sort of macho feel about it that you were seen as you know you you weren't seen as weak, but in your head you thought you were showing weakness. If um you you, know, you did uh, get upset or anything like that, so you even if you were upset, you went off somewhere in your own to do to be upset. You wouldn't have done it in front of your mates or if you're out for a drink. You had to be the tough guy with them, and they were all probably having the same facade uh, of, of keeping it, and then they just drink more, uh, and and so it went on in, in a vicious cycle. And it's it's the world over. I mean, it's not peculiar to uh, Northern Ireland or, or the violence. I mean, I'm sure there's. Cops not too far away from you who do the exact thing. Hence, in the States, you'd have what are known as police bars because that's where they tend to go. Uh, and you always think, oh, that place is full of cops. Um, and, they're, and they're in there sounding off. Um, I, I read um, uh, I read during, during doing a bit of research um, for, for this, that, that at one stage, uh, at one stage you showed up to uh, a scene that was to be your your murder scene is that right? And uh, normally yes. Um, and I'm, I'm also um, I used to not to actually I know I put it in the book, but I used to not say a lot about it for the simple reason, uh, John. I, I was I was very conscious that um somebody died, uh, who 
you know, well, I don't mean in my stead, but uh, certainly uh, the, the well, when I went down, I was out in a van driving about, and um, the police who'd been at the scene of the murder couldn't identify the person. And um, the, but they'd been claimed by the IRA as a policeman, and none of the police knew him, the new ID on them, and it was unusual, they just couldn't do it. And um, anyway, that was all fine and dandy, and so far as it is. Um, I was out and about, and I went down and looked. And I can remember putting the sheet back and says, Face now, actually, I'm talking to you. And I go, No, nah, I don't know. And uh, sort of moved on with my day, and that was, that was the way you had to do it when you, uh, anyway. And it was a press version of it, but I went back then to my office and I was in there. And um, a friend of mine rang me, uh, used to play rugby with and uh, from a special branch. And uh, he said to me, CB, did you see that shooting today? And I said, did I see it? I was actually down at it. And uh, he said, did you see his car? And I said, no. And um, he wasn't in the car. I mean, so anyway, the upshot of it was the difference. Uh, I identified too much with him. I can't remember what I wrote in the book. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the difference in the targeting of him, who was nothing to do with the police. He wasn't in the police. He was actually... Uh, going to local tech and day release from his work, uh, but he worked lived near where I work, and uh, the difference was in it between a three and an eight, uh, in the targeting. The one of the cars was three three, and the other one was eight eight, and the same type of car and color, and obviously the IRA uh, people who were watching said it's a three and eight. They've got the number wrong because it was too coincidental for it to be. You know, that was the only difference, and the number itself was every other digit was correct, except that three and one eight. So they started to follow the wrong car. Jesus Christ. Did, did, did you remember exactly how you felt when the penny dropped? That, that it was- well, because well, at the time when I was there, I didn't realise, and it was only when my friend rang me. And if he hadn't known me in my car, I, don't, I might never have heard. But anyway, um, I had to get... A, a new number plate from security branch that afternoon in the car I had to get rid of it the next day um, and just that was another few changes and things being you know, security wise for my own security but um, yeah it was um, I think I'm a member of a fairly unique club uh, that I've actually attended my own murder yeah, yeah that's true um, what I was going to say yeah, okay so would it be presumed that if a particular RUC officer was being targeted like you, uh, w- w- would it be would it be possible that they were just targeted because they were an RUC officer, or, or would it have to be like a, a, an officer of particular of particular um, annoyance to the to, to whoever? No, I mean there may be occasions when some person has you know had the maybe leading an investigation into something and they've had particular success against a particular group from whatever quarter and they might have taken thick as we would say at home uh against him personally but for the most part um and it would tend to be you know the provost or something that were killing a policeman it was just a you were just a policeman it didn't really matter uh, you know, if um, it would, I'm not saying it never happened, but it wouldn't have always been, you know, you, the that particular person. Uh, it would have, um, they just were a cop and you were handy and they could, uh, were an easier target than some other guys, or you could make yourself a more difficult target by taking measures. Not everybody did, and not everybody stuck to them. And 
it uh, paid the price again, but uh, that's just um, how it worked. Somebody's going to tell you there. Anyway. Um, what, what, would be, what would be some of the methods, um, the, I, I don't know if you call them like counter surveillance or preventing yourself from getting followed, but you, can you remember any just, just out of interest? Well, you would certainly have a, quite a high vigilance as in a level of people. Uh, if you saw cars or people, um, you know, too often, you know, beyond the coincidence of seeing them, you, you would have heightened awareness. Um, or motorbikes would have been a danger coming up um, behind you, you know, and there's a pillion passenger, you know, you'd be certainly keeping a close eye, let's say. Um, and, and the closer you got, I mean, you can vary your route all you want, but sooner or later you have to get to where it is you work. So, I mean, obviously the route's narrow um, the closer you get to it. And, and that's, you, you could almost work out where the areas are to uh, where you're most exposed um, to the attack and then you would take whatever measures. But checking under your car, certainly, um, you know, for booby trap bombs uh, would be a, a, a must. And very often if they're watching, which they will have been, uh, and they see that you do that, and he always checks his car, and we'll go on to find somebody else who's maybe more lackadaisical about it or doesn't bother all the time. Um, and that's just, again, the the, the reality of, of these things. And, and many a person has fallen foul of it for that reason. Right, right. You, you've always got to try it. I mean, and you'll never do it. Mean, there's no such thing as absolute security, but you can make it look... Even if it's not, you make it look as difficult as possible uh, for the terrorist, uh, or there's a chance that he might get caught, or that you might you're vigilant, or you're always armed or carrying. And I remember one guy down the country always in out his car in the mornings uh, when he was heading to work carrying a shotgun, and they would think, "Oh, I'm looking near him," um, you know, especially a shotgun because it's hard to miss him. So, but it's amazing how that works, you know that. Um, and there had been the cases when they had been looking at them and they were put off by his vigilance. So, I mean, it, it can be done. And because I remember actually with the um, rioting there a while ago uh, in the States, and I remember reading about some uh, police officer, I think it was in New Jersey, but getting attacked at home. And I was just thinking to myself, now, it's one thing getting shot at, at work when you're just the uniform walking about. But if they went to their house because of them, that's up 10 gears. And that's where I was actually thinking of myself. I mean, for America, uh, that is the most dangerous thing I've, out of all of this street disorder and deaths and all that have been happening. That's the one thing that's the most dangerous that I've, I've in my opinion, that I've wanted heard or set off the biggest alarm bell with me. Because once that starts happening, or if you find that police in particular areas would decide not to go to work because it was too dangerous, if they were leaving their families and houses exposed at home, you know, when they don't go. Um, I mean, uh, that's a proper problem or uh, going to become one. I agree. No, I, I agree. W w was there ever occasions where, um, I suppose, I mean, the like the Belfast area is, is relatively small, you know, c compared to other places. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, did you ever, when, when you were off the job, did you ever run into um, someone you had arrested or questioned or, or dealt with um, while in a professional capacity, but but you run into them on the street. Uh, when you're off duty. Yeah, it, 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 it's happened now and again. And um, it, it, <laughs> you get this uh, bizarre area uh, 
whereby saying I'm going to say a pub just for the pick somewhere that you know you could be in having a pint with uh, friends or whatever, and somebody comes in, and you can see you recognise them, and most cops would be fairly observant anyway, and and would predict I mean I my kids just to keep me going. Uh, but I had to sit, you know, as I called the gunslinger seat, you know, in a restaurant. I wanted to sit facing the door, uh, all that sort of carry on. And they would actually used to j- try to run ahead. You know, it was the funniest thing on earth. We'll get to the seat facing the door because Dad will want it. And they'd, <laughs> you'd do no him and he'd throw us out of it, which he did. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, I mean, they'd even noticed. Um, so you would have that and you can actually find yourself in a place with, uh, you know, players as it were and uh, you're, but you're probably both pretending that nobody knows who the other one is uh, yet everybody knows full well I've even been in a bar in fact it just reminded me uh, like on the outskirts of Belfast with, with someone and um, two players and, and very evil bad players um, multiple murderers and uh, then the next thing two pints came over and I go, that's because I wasn't, I didn't even live anywhere near where I was. And I go, what's this? This two pints, and there's a gentleman over there, and over in their chair. And that was it. I'm just saying, we, you know, we know you and we know who you are, and all the rest. And sent me over two pints, which I finished and left. <laughs> As they say in the best newspapers, I made my excuses and left. <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that didn't happen to me very often, but it did happen that one day. I remember that one afternoon, and it was in a very, it wasn't a place you'd have expected any, not it wasn't anywhere near anywhere that anybody should know me. But I suppose everybody has to be somewhere. Right. I, I remember, I remember reading in that book. Um, remember that book, Say Nothing by, by Patrick Radden Keith? Yes, I know, I know the book you mean. I haven't read it actually, but I do know it. It's quite, yeah, it's very good if, if anyone hasn't. But, but there was one story where, um, uh, don't quote me on the details now, but I think it was an, I, an intelligence officer, and he'd been he'd been uh, uh, he'd been interrogating like a suspected or or what what was real what what was a real Republican, um, and let him go, and then went for dinner some night in a seafood place, and it was it was your man who served him his meal, um, uh, yeah, that, that 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 kind of thing. Yeah, it's not just um, it doesn't uh, help for a relax. A relaxing evening when you're trying to uh, throw the food down your neck as quickly as possible and get out because the whole danger is obviously going to be that whilst he might be there and he's out of work and yeah they make a phone call and uh, they're waiting on the outside you know as soon as you end, they'll probably know your car if they that you feel that known or even if they don't know your car they're going to know you coming out and they'll describe what you're wearing and whoever you're with so that would be the problem um, w- w- would you mind telling me a bit about the you, you you mentioned there was five occasions where you were shot at um uh three republican two loyalist w- w- were they um were they shootouts or or how they no 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 they weren't anything as dramatic I'm happy to report uh they were more just in the area that the, the terrorists would open fire at place for whatever reason and I happened to be with others uh there wasn't that specifically at me. Um, it, it was just a, a shooting at us because we were there, and uh, I mean that was coming off. I mean the, the first, just when you were saying, actually about different organisations. The first policeman murdered in the troubles. Uh, Victor Arbuckle was shot dead by loyalists on the Shanko Road in Agnes Street. Uh, you went back in nineteen sixty nine or something. I can't remember. I should know. It's terrible. But, uh, anyway, 
uh, he was standing at the corner just outside the bank with uh, a couple other cops and uh, opened fire on him and he was killed. Um, did, did you ever, um, uh, did this is something I, I'd struggle with, like a small bit myself, like I, I, I certainly agree with the, certainly agree with the goal of wanting a united ireland and 32 counties i i I can very much see the and and i agree with the the argument for that but but i wouldn't i i i wouldn't ever think that targeting civilians or you know bombs or or, or acts of what i would call acts of terrorism i i i don't think that's justified in its in its pursuit um did, did you ever um did you ever have like a degree of kind of empathy or sympathy with um, the goal of um, of some of the IRA men, uh, m- m- not n- not the methods of, of course, but the the actual. Uh-huh. I can understand the uh, intellectual argument as to how they would want it. Obviously, I draw a line with them trying to kill me over because it. Uh, <laughs> call me old fashioned. But uh, um, so from that aspect, but uh, there again, I was saying to you that there was due to go to Trinity. I mean, I went to boarding school in Dublin, so I've known the South fully well. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know how much time was spent. It's not like a competition. I down to all the rugby matches, played rugby down there, played for uh, clubs there and against clubs there. So, I mean, uh, it's not like a, I saw um, the South of some alien country that I would never want anything to do with. Politically, I would never have aspired, or but equally too, I wasn't probably chronically against it. And if anything, it's been because, and then I suppose my, uh, but even even setting aside the place, I would think uh, that I, I, I mean politically and you know just what I'm saying about financially and you know, economically and opportunity and all that, I, I don't have that uh, desire. But it's not that it's a blind uh, objection to it. It's merely that, the, as well as a bit grand to say, intellectually, I wouldn't necessarily agree with it or aspire to it. But I understand how people do aspire to it, and I couldn't care less. But that, and when I say I don't mean I'm not dismissing your aspiration. I, what I mean is I have no objection to anybody having that aspiration. So perfectly why wouldn't you? And why shouldn't you? Or anybody have what, what, where I drew the line was probably I'm even more strongly um, stubborn about it now rather than uh, any chance of being more open to it is probably because of the vows. Uh, and that would sort of makes it a cold home for me, a uh, place that I spent my formative years at school, and that's sad too. But it's because of uh, what people want to do in the name of it, rather than, and, and that's not the people down there that I know who want that. It's a minority, and it's always minorities everywhere, including on the loyalist side here, who create the problem. As I've always said, uh, in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants, and especially in working class areas had more problems in common than, than they had that caused them to fight each other. And if they'd only realised that, this, these troubles might never have started. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Far more in common um, than, than different. Yeah, the, 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 the sectarian the sectarian aspect is like Catholic people, so some Catholic people hating Protestants and, and, and vice versa. It, it's a real shame, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, there's really no... The, there's really no... No fundamental like difference. Well, we we used to say we've got um, too much religion and not enough Christianity. <laughs> uh, that, that's a, a fundamental part of our difficulty, and you know it's uh, 
you know, them and us, and I mean, it's a nonsense when you know, living 50 feet apart, and until probably we get kids being educated in school together, they'll still continue in places that grow up as if the, the people who go somewhere else on a Sunday, if they even go these days, uh, are, are aliens, you know, and it's just not the case. And I mean, I don't know. I, I know what I see here. I, don't, I never see crowds rushing out of churches around here anyway. Uh, and yet it seems to be so important uh, that we'll kill each other over it, but uh, not important enough to waste your hangover on a Sunday morning sitting there <laughs> and listening to bad music. Yeah, I understand. Um, I, I wanted to ask you there. I, obviously, you've been out of the... You've been out of the the, the game, yeah. so to speak, like like any you know any dealings with Republicans or IRA or anything. But just from from your point of view, um, now and in the last kind of 10, 15 years, uh, what what would you say the role of the IRA is in the North? Like, it, I it, it's not obviously that there's not a thankfully that there's not really shootings and bombings so on. My, my perception in 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 the Republic anyway, I know that they. They're known for like shaking down drug dealers for for collecting like like a tax on, on drug dealers. Um, but but to my to my knowledge, I, I wouldn't really know, but to my knowledge, like no we'll say operations, like like so to speak. W- w- would that be the same up, up the north? Or they're just kind of involved in, in they're probably very similar on both sides of the border. And I know a place obviously on both sides of I'm still doing people in Interpol for left the guards. The um Really, what we were left with with uh, peace, uh, inverted commas, um, were our crime gangs. I mean, they still need a certain amount of money to run their operations. They haven't gone away, as famously was said. They do target drug dealers, both lots of paramilitary. I don't just mean the, the, the IRA. But then they don't target IRA or uh, drug dealers who are sanctioned uh, and who are paying them. Uh, and that applies equally to both sides and moving drugs around Europe. If you can get a ton of Semtex in, you can get a ton of hash in or a ton of cocaine, and there's an awful lot of money in that, but there's not much money in Semtex. Um, and, you know, they've still got to make a living. And it was what disclosed in the cash for ashes here. Um, funny enough, a, a little snippet that uh, came out during the inquiry was that um, the... Sinn Féin ministers were still emails turned up in his email thing when they were investigating the uh, inquiry that still coming from the IRA Army Council saying yes that's okay to go ahead with that to the finance minister here uh, and I mean I'm not saying I'm not a, I wouldn't say it because if legally it could be stood over I mean that happened so it was still being they were still running past the IRA and the Army Council the third tier of command the day to day, but they were still running stuff past it before the sanction that went into law here. So, I mean, you work it out. I don't know how influential they are, but I know that um, there's a lot of money at stake on both sides, and that's what we've been left with. And then, of course, if they make themselves enough use, and some government will throw money at them to make them stop doing something. And that's, again, the world over happens. Uh, very good. I'll 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 leave you go soon enough there. Um, we 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 mentioned it. Uh, we mentioned it a couple of times, but the the books you wrote. I'm I'm looking forward to getting into them myself. Um, but the the I I think the description you gave was like you you wanted to to tell like the the real life human stories of of these people who who work such a difficult job in 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 such in such a difficult time. You know, 
That, that's correct. And what I, I was trying to do, history was being rewritten, as it happens the world over. Um, and it was really, I just felt that, and, and policemen were always very reluctant to speak about their experiences, the type of things we were talking about today. They were very reluctant to speak about them. And when I did the first book, it was just called A Force Like No Other, uh, simply because of the peculiar circumstances, not any special thing about the, the force itself. But um, And then as the popularity of the books, and then people started to realise that actually, do you know what, you can tell about things that happened and things they experienced and the, the, the world didn't fall in. Uh, so anyway, so then we got the first thing, no other than the next shift, because I'm very imaginative with my titles, we <laughs> got one. Um, and then the third one was the first thing, no other, uh, the last shift, uh, as it went to the wind out. And the second book, Touch on Post Traumatic Stress, as well as um, Incidents like a Bally Gully Gus Boss got bombing. Uh, I remember um, the fellow told me he had a torch, no lights. You know, crawling around, feeling it was how much of the body was there, and he was saturated in blood all over the floor of it. Uh, I couldn't see, uh, apart from the story. He said, in many ways, the torch made it worse because you know, you'd flash and see these bits of body, and he describes going up one. And uh, he got the show, and he said, Oh, I wonder if this guy alive, most of the body's here, and then they got up the top with no head. Um, you know, when he was crawling around in blood, he literally saturated. And uh, he, he said it wasn't until he got home then the, the tears came for him, but he had to deal with it at the time. Um, so things like that, uh, was that a reason for saying, oh, I, I was supposed to traumatic stress, I, I touched on it in the second book, and there's some harrowing stories I'm going to try and tell you them now. But um, and then the third one, uh, I wanted to let families speak, because, I mean, it was all very well for us at work, because when we were at work, we knew we were all right. Um, and if you weren't all right, well, you might not have known, but nobody didn't matter. Um, but the families were at home just watching the clock and maybe hearing the news and there'd been an incident, you know, or whatever, and they don't know whether you're alive or dead. There's actually a woman who um, talked about, um, you know, dreading the knock on the door and uh, the police come down and hurt her uncle or somebody was a senior policeman. But, uh, and her husband had been shot and it turned out he wasn't dead. But I mean, it was that drive and she didn't know no mobile phones or nothing until they got there. They ended up going to Canada and the guy met the person who shot him in Canada and actually became friends. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible story. But there's others, you know, just mundane policing stories going to a burglary at a school and um, the guy's partner getting killed and his, said her father never came home. He's a different person. Uh, then there was problems at home because of the mental problems he was having. Uh, they're just, I was trying to humanize the uniform. And, and you know, people here, you know, it should have been in the States as well or anywhere. You know, two cops were killed. There's just two uniforms, I don't know. There was another one in Friendly Street, of all places in Belfast. Um, these two policemen went around the corner they were driving past and uh, one of them came back with his best friend all sticking to his flak jacket he was blowing all over him all his insides everything you know and that's from they were I think they'd been over getting pepper or something they were coming back and they, there was a call that somebody needed help and that's what they were going to do and then they detonated a, a bomb so I mean I don't mean that book's full of that but it's, it's the, the, the harsh reality there's no polite way to blow someone up you know, and this is what terrorists from wherever they're from, 
and from whatever side they're from, it's the same net result. They deal in death. They keep undertakers wealthy, glaziers wealthy, blowing places. Uh, and sooner or later, somebody has to go along and try and tidy up after it. And more importantly, stop them. Because we just can't do it when kids are left. And it's their future. It's not mine. I've had my time with it. It's the kids. Um, it sounds to me um, like like the, the, the contents of your books w- w- would make for a good, uh, I don't know, film or TV series. I mean, there's a lot more TV series these days with the likes of Netflix and Hulu's and them. Did, w- did you have any kind of, uh, I don't know, any any wishes to... to, to well, see, to, I to did see. do... Um, uh, um, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> uh, it was... A, Imagine Belfast Festival up near Queen's University there um, around Easter. And uh, I had an actor and an actress uh, reading stories from some of the books. And Mark Davenport from the BBC was talking to me and asked me questions and uh, leading in. And um, the, the, that actually it sold out in two days. So there was an appetite uh, to, to hear it. And um, so I have since been speaking to someone, but of course, getting finance uh, is a problem for anything, but we'd like to see some sort of stage um, production of, uh, of bringing the stories, not just they're being told, but they're being brought to life. And again, sort of put life into the horrors of what heard or breathing life into where the horrors took life. Uh, as to how things came about and the after effect and the effect that it's had in the, the, the families. But I mean, the, the books are called A Force Like No Other, all three, and they're on Amazon in America. I'm going to plug in now. I, um, and probably the bookshops could, should be able to get to them as well. But anyway, uh, but they've certainly been very popular because they, they've shown it's just the reality. There's nothing dressed up. They didn't need dressed up. And the one thing I would say about them is, uh, irrespective of my background or anything else, there's no opinion given by any one of the people who spoke to me, and there's no commentary. Uh, it's just what happened when they got the call or they went to wherever, and there's an awful lot of humour in them, there's an awful lot of horror in them, and there's the families and the, the post-traumatic stress. And anybody's... Uh, I mean, you don't have to have been a policeman to realise the, the, the value or the document for the from the historical point of view i think but i would do I suppose. but uh they're, they're an interesting reading people who have told me that i mean the comments i get back and i get people uh, have, uh, i'm on twitter calling brain 12 and that and people send me messages on that or have a web page just called brain.com i think uh, <laughs> i've never actually looked myself up i think it's called brain.com but anyway um so people send me messages through that as well when they've read the books. And it's been very um, moving for me in that people thanking me for being their voice, which I wasn't trying to be. I was trying to just put the stuff on record for history. But uh, the fact that they felt nobody was taking, you know, families, particularly of people who were injured or killed in the troubles, not just police, but that some somebody's taking an interest in, in, in what happened and is telling the story of what happened to their father, grandfather, mother, or what they witnessed. There's harrowing stories of all sorts of things. I'm going to be here this time next week uh, trying to tell you them. But um, anyway, a force like no other, if anybody's of an interest, it's, it's there. And uh, see what they think. And then 
uh, hopefully they'll uh, I'm always very loath to say they enjoy it. I always say to people, I hope you find this of interest. <laughs> I'm not sure enjoy is the right word, but anyway. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. You 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 can be um something can be very fascinating and insightful and interesting, but 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 about a topic that isn't quite uh what you would call enjoyable. Yeah, I, I know. And, and you will laugh. I mean, and, and people try. In fact, a very uh, a lot better not name them because I'll never hear the end of it. But uh, it was a national news BBC journalist, and who's uh, retired now, but anyway, he was uh, back visiting uh, Northern Ireland. And, uh, contacted me and met him for a couple of buffs and um, he actually said to me that it, he, he, I knew he'd read the books because he corresponds to me now and again but he, he just he said to me he says you know uh, he says that last book of years he said you made me weep he always said weep that's what makes me remember it. but he said you make, you've made me weep and I said well that's not bad for a cynical I'll hack like you uh, of 30 odd years reporting from all around the world uh, and the, the I said, I'll take that. Actually, I was writing them up, of course. Well, that's good. I've, I've always wanted to make you, <laughs> but anyway, we had a laugh about it, which tells his own tale. But we were, he, he was being very serious about how he moved and he found uh, the stories. And he had reported from here at times, uh, for the national news in London. Uh, v- very good. I'll, I'll leave you go. T- t- thank you very much. Um, so much. No, thank you. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable, and um, hopefully, we'll team up sometime and get a beer in real life. Well, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you're ever, if you're ever over New York, um, I, I, despite, um, despite living in Ireland, my, 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 my whole growing up life, I, I, I've never been, I've never been up North. So I, I, I love to go something. Well, it's time you did. I, don't know, I can organize a, uh, I was going to say a tour, I might give you tour tours. <laughs> anyway, I can show you around the place. Don't worry about that. I'll just good. contact me anytime. Anyway, good to talk to you, John. And, uh, a pleasure to meet you all a bit through the atmosphere. Soundbite. Th- th- thanks again for, for the insight, everything you shared. I'll, I'll put a link in the in the podcast and the YouTube to, to the book so, so people can get them if, if they like. Well, well, that would be fantastic. And if you, if you can drop me a line to let me know when you've got it there, I'll get hold of it somewhere. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. I hope that was all right for you anyway. Thanks very much, Colin. All right. Cheers. Take care of yourself.